if you have your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 9. <clears throat> Speaking of Bibles, uh, Marla, thanks for finding mine. I was looking for it all morning. And my notes. It was, was going to be very interesting. Um. Uh, but we, uh, for those of you maybe that are just joining us uh, this morning, we are just celebrating a month of Christmas. We thought, why wait until Christmas Eve and Christmas morning? Let's just look at it all of December and specifically looking at some of the things that are wrong with the world and how Christmas solves that, how the birth of Jesus Christ solves that. Last week we looked at just the uh, sin in individual lives uh, and all of the the things that come out of that and how Jesus came to, uh, to save the world from their sins. This, uh, this week, we're going to look at Christmas and our fallen world and why we have reason to rejoice uh, in the birth of Christ. But right now, uh, in order to do that, I just want to look at John chapter 9. We're going to read the first seven verses uh, as he is an adult and something that he did uh, specifically. But first, I want to pray tell a little story, and then I'll read this text. Heavenly Father, we just thank you today for your word, and thank you for the revelation of the knowledge that you have broken into our world, that God, who is holy and righteous and eternal, all-powerful and all-present, has broken into the, the finiteness of the human experience, because you are a God of love, and you love the things that you have created And the crowning jewel of your creation is your people. And you love people. And thank you that you you did not see fit to leave people in despair and in agony and in brokenness and in hopelessness. But you broke into those things to, as Paul says, shine a light into the darkness, revealing the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. And I just want to pray for my, my dear brothers and sisters today that that light would break forth, that the dawn would rise and the light would shine into the darkest places and into the shadows and it would would reveal your beauty. And I pray that we would leave out here regardless of uh, whatever situation we might find ourselves in with a sense of celebration that the King has come. We love you, King Jesus. Reveal more of yourself to us today in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, to kind of set the tone and backdrop for what I want to talk about today, uh, if I can put it in a phrase, there are certain things uh, in our lives that just don't work the way that they're supposed to. Certain things that we live without. Looking back on my life, there were certain things that I lived without that, looking back in retrospect, would have made life a lot easier for me if I had them, uh, like a box spring for my bed. For the first 10 years, uh, all maybe eight years of my life in Santa Barbara, college years, I uh, would move into these homes and have to furnish my own place, you know, with with furniture and stuff like that. And I remember the first apartment I had in Santa Barbara, I just had a, I just had a mattress. I actually had two mattresses, but no box spring. I was like, whatever. And I slept on those mattresses. And every 
apartment after that. I don't know why this worked out the way that it did, but every place that I moved in after that had another two mattresses, but no box spring. By the time I lived in my third apartment, there were a total of six, because I brought them with me, I just kind of accumulated mattresses. In, my, in the last one, I ended up with six mattresses with no box spring, and I never, never bought a box spring because it was kind of like an oil change for me at that time. Like, uh, I know there's probably a reason to do this, but I can't see the effects of it, and so I'm just going to get something else. And so, but it turns out oil changes are actually important, and so are box springs. <laughs> box springs are kind of the skeleton to your bed, right? I know that now. I've grown in wisdom over the years. <clears throat> and it's that skeleton that provides a little bit of stability to your bed. Now, if you just sleep on two mattresses, you feel a little wobbly. I want you to imagine six mattresses stacked on top of each other. And you're laughing, but it takes a certain amount of skill to sleep on six mattresses. So in my last place, I think, it was, I, think it, I ended up in Carpinteria, brought all of my mattresses with me in, the, uh, in my bedroom, and uh, six of them come up to about this high. And they teeter and totter like a tower. And so to, to sleep on a bed that high, you'd actually have to kind of pole vault your way on, onto the mattresses, land directly in the middle, and hope that you don't fall over. And I mastered this art. And once I was asleep, you know, you, you kind of have to sit still and not roll over or move. And there were a couple times that I did and fell six feet off of my bed. Um, and then one day, I met this girl. And she, uh, she had been working for an interior designer. She was educated in interior design. And she walked into that room and she was like, uh-uh, this ain't going to happen. And so I married her, and <laughs> all of my problems disappeared. <laughs> all of those problems disappeared. But my life was a mess in a variety of ways, and I needed somebody to fix it. Now, I'm not saying that marriage is going to fix all of your problems. I'm saying, by way of analogy, that there are certain things in life that don't work, that don't make sense, Sometimes life is a, me- a mess, and there are times where we actually need someone from the outside to step in and rearrange that mess, perhaps because of our own ignorance, perhaps because of our own ineptitude, perhaps because of brokenness, perhaps just because that's the way the world is. I want to show you a story far beyond the domain of mattresses and box springs where we start getting into sickness and disease and hurt and pain, where we see this uh, in the life of Jesus. And I want to read John chapter 9, verse 1 through 7. It says that as Jesus went along, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. He's speaking about his death. But while I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And after saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him. Wash in the pool of Siloam, which is the word for scent. 
And so the man went and washed and came home seeing. This is the word of the Lord. I want you to focus all of your attention on this question that perhaps some of us ask. Certainly some of us have been asking after last week when we spoke about sin and all the problem that comes with individual sin. We sin and it creates consequences. The most of which is a separation from God that spills out into all sorts of other troubles and problems. Perhaps some of us are asking these questions about a a lot of other things. And indeed, the disciples are asking Jesus this question. They see a man born blind from birth. And they turn to Jesus and they said, Okay, who's at fault here? His parents or him? Who's the one who 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 did the wrong thing, Lord? What's wrong with this guy's life? What did he do? And if it wasn't him that did something, maybe it's his parents. Who sinned? And Jesus, almost in a roundabout way, cuts that off at the root by saying, it's not always because somebody sinned. Things aren't always the way that they are because you sinned and that's the consequence of it. Not all that is ill is necessarily our fault. Sometimes it is. Some things are ill because of the curse of sin, not merely because of our individual sins. Sometimes we're walking along on a happy road, doing our thing, seeking first the kingdom of God, and life is terrible just because that's the way that it is. And I think what Jesus does in this text, the one who came, who was born, we saw last week, we're asking the question, what did he come? What was he born to do? I think, he asks, uh, I think he answers a few questions that might be on a few of our minds. One is, what's wrong with the world? Second uh, question that I think he answers is, what's being done about it? And third is, what does it mean for us? But Jesus answers this, what is wrong with the world? If it's not this guy's individual sin that he was born blind, or, or his parents that came before him, then why is it? And he does it in a bit of a roundabout way, right? He says, this happened, his blindness happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now, at first glance, that might seem a little cruel. It might sound like what Jesus is saying is God makes people sick so that he can prove something. I think a better way of saying this is God waited. That there is a reason why blindness and brokenness and hurt and pain and distortion and strife and chaos are in the world. In this individual instance, God has waited until this point to do something about it so that the works of God might be on display in this person. Now, what works? Well, the prophets, way before Jesus used to speak about what Jesus was about to do in this instance, they hinted at it like a movie trailer. They were a siren screaming about something and someone. A day when this liberation would come to our lives and to our our environment and to everything that we know. And they hinted about a couple things. One, they hinted about a man who had come. 
I want you, if, uh, if you've got your Bibles or your devices, it's not going to be on, on the screen, turn to Isaiah 61. And I just want to read you about this, this hinting Isaiah is right after Song of Solomon's, after Ecclesiastes, after Proverbs, after the Psalms. And in Isaiah chapter 61, there's this chapter called the Year of the Lord's Favor. And it's set against the backdrop of all that is despairing in the world. And the prophet, speaking on behalf of God, is saying, Something about the future. There's somebody coming. Look at this description of him. I'm just going to read the first four verses. It's speaking of this someone who is coming. And he is saying, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. To proclaim liberty to the captives. And the opening of the prison to those who are bound. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. To comfort all who mourn. To grant to those who mourn in Zion. To give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. The oil of gladness instead of mourning. The garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. That they may be called oaks of righteousness. The planting of the Lord. That he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. And so there's this hinting of someone who would come who would restore all that is broken. Now turn a few chapters uh, uh, ahead to Isaiah 65 to see more specifically what this person, this Messiah would do. Chapter 65, look at verse uh, 17. This is a pretty long one. I'm just going to read it because it's so good. Verse 17 through through 25. You could call this part of the purpose statement of this person who's coming. Verse 17, for behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. And the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy. Speaking in the present tense right now. It's so real for him. And her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall be in it an infant who lives but a few days. Or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old, and the sinner a hundred years old shall be a curse. That's like a, a, an exa- a, a, basically a way of saying this is a hundred years will be young. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and for my chosen shall long enjoy the works of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. For they shall be the offspring of the blessing uh, of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. And he goes on describing this blessing. Here is why this was so ingrained 
in the hearts of God's people. God designed everything that there is from a place of goodness. He did not design it from a place of distortion or brokenness. We see from the very beginning of Genesis chapter one, everything that God made was good. Everything that he made was uh, glorious and beautiful and for the end goal of his glory and for human flourishing, everything, everything from work to recreation to relationships, And when Adam and Eve, when humanity decided to rebel against God's perfect plan, it was a usurping of his rule and reign. And out of that came what we would call sin. That was an act of sin, but it opened up the world to sin. We call this the fall, right? And out of that, God said to Adam and Eve, to the serpent, in that story in Genesis chapter 3, because of this sin, because of this rebellion, there is now a, a taintedness to the world. There's a distortion to it. There is a curse, is the word that the Bible uses. And he goes through this curse and he speaks to Adam about work and how it's going to be unfulfilling. That thing that was meant to be full of joy is now going to be futile and empty and frustrating sometimes. And in their relationships, there would be conflict and strife and always usurping rule over one another. And even in the body, from Adam to Eve in childbirth, there's pain, there's also sickness, and there's death, spiritual as well as physical. We see all of these things hovering around. What we ultimately see, if we can summarize it in one phrase is that God's good design has been distorted. Things don't work as they should. There's a mess. And we've inherited the mess and there needs to be someone who steps in from the outside and fixes the mess. We can't fix the mess. And the prophets were hinting throughout the centuries, somebody is coming to where you are to fix the mess. Someone is coming who has the power to wield over the curse of sin. Now look at, uh, turn with me to Luke chapter 4. When Jesus comes of age, he's baptized not only by John, his cousin, but also by the Holy Spirit. Goes into the desert, into the wilderness, is tested by the Holy Spirit, resisting the devil 40 days of fasting, and then he launches his public ministry. The first thing that he does, at least, uh, at least in Luke, is he goes straight into a synagogue, right? In the synagogue, it was typical and common for Jewish men, uh, if they were invited, to walk up to the front and grab a scroll and to comment on a particular passage, and the rest of the synagogue would, uh, would listen to it and worship, they would perhaps argue about it or speak more about it. This was a common thing. Jesus, coming of age as a young 30-year-old Jewish male, would have had his opportunity to do that, and so he does it. And, you know, they would open up a scroll, make some comments, perhaps allude to things that other uh, scholars and rabbis have said upon that, and it was to be very edifying for the people gathered in that moment. And Jesus like many young men who would have gone before him, does a similar thing but different. He's always shaking things up. Look at what he does in verse 16 of Luke chapter 4. And 
came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. So this is his childhood town, right? This is where he's grown up. Now he's 30 years old. He's a young man, goes into that church, synagogue, goes into that synagogue where he was brought up, and as was the custom, he went to that synagogue on Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he unrolls the scroll and found the place where it was written and where we just read. And he reads it out loud. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. They were waiting for him to comment upon the scripture that he just read. And in verse 21, it says, And he began to say to them, Today, the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Today, this passage has come true in me. And in verse 22, you see the effect of what he says. People were speaking well. They were marveling at his gracious words coming from their mouth. And some of them were like tripping out. They're like, isn't this Joseph's son? Like we saw him when he was a four-year-old. Like that, this is the guy, Isaiah 61. <clears throat> a few minutes later, they all try to kill him, but that's a tangent. But he's making the claim. All of the Old Testament has been lurching forward to this day when God would send somebody to make everything right. And I am that person. In chapter 7, I'm just going to keep reading verses about Jesus. Is that cool? (laughs) Nobody's going to say no, right? Luke chapter 7, verse 18. At one point, John the Baptist, who believes that Jesus, his, his younger cousin, is the Messiah, finds himself in prison. One of the things that the Jews were looking for in a Messiah was someone who would defeat Rome, rescue them from the power of the empire, and give them their land back. And John finds himself in prison. That is the opposite of liberation from the empire, right? So John starts to question, is this really the Messiah that Isaiah was speaking about? Now remember what Isaiah was speaking about. He was speaking about all of those things, is speaking about liberation from powers, but it was also speaking about deliverance from bondage, deliverance from the curse. John sends messengers to the Lord, and it says in verse 19, are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In other words, have I been wrong, cousin? Are, are you the right one, or should we be looking for others? Because I'm in prison right now, and you're not... You're not gathering an army. And when the men had come to them and said, uh, said this in, in verse 21, uh, excuse me, verse 22, Jesus answered them and said, go and tell John this. Go and tell, him, go and tell him what you have seen and heard, that the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news to preach to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Little jab at John right there. What was Jesus doing? He was answering the question, are you the Messiah? He was essentially in a roundabout way saying, yes, 
Because what does the Messiah do? What did Isaiah say he would do? He would heal the sick. He would cleanse the leper. He would cast out demons. He would give a, a sight to the blind. He would raise up the lame. He would reverse the curse. Yes, he would do all of these other things too, but look, I'm doing those things. I am the one. Right here in John chapter 9 in our text today is the disciples are looking. They're struggling through some of these concepts. They're looking at this guy who's sitting down there blind from birth, and they're asking them, is this his fault? Jesus says no. Some things are waiting for the work of God to be put on display in them. And then he says, as long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. And while I am in the world, I am the light of the world, verse 4 and 5. Uh, he's basically saying right there, while you have me before I die, I have some work to do. So let's get to work. In other words, he's, he's, he's answering the question, some things are not our fault. Some things are there because they're the result of a broken, fallen world and only I can fix it. And so let me get to work. Jesus claims to be that guy, the one who would bring liberation from things like death and sickness and futility, but also from the little things too that don't always feel so little, our, our, our desires and our loves and our cravings that are misaligned. He came to redirect them and align them with God. He came to give us right desires and to fulfill our desire to, to be full. He came to heal our bodies. He came to heal our minds. He came to heal our relationships. He came to set right the things in the world that cannot be set right by any act of legislation or power play or political power. He came to do what humanity has never been able to do from the big and to the small. We have a shorthand word to describe all of that. We call it the kingdom. He came to bring the kingdom. And when he came the first time, this is what we celebrate as, as Christmas, what he did there was he, he introduced us to the kingdom. This was a moment when Jesus was born. This was a moment in an unprecedented way where God's world collided with ours. Where heaven touched earth in one of the most tangible ways in human history. And we got a taste of what things are supposed to be like. And this blind man gets a taste too. Verse six, after saying this, he spits on the ground, makes some mud with his saliva, and puts it on the man's eyes, and comes home seeing. Any of you ever try that? <laughs> That'd be crazy, right? <laughs> what if it doesn't work? Like, oh, sorry. <laughs> Jesus spits on the ground, makes mud, puts it on the person's eyes. A lot, most, a lot of people are not clear on why he did that. One of the things that keeps coming up is maybe the mud. It's possible that the mud is hinting back to Genesis before the fall to God's creative activity of making humans out of the mud. And if that's true, this is like an echo of God's creative activity. The creator is back again, recreating. 
He's bringing people back to their original design. He's reversing the curse. He is doing what we, we sing every year in that song. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He has come to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Now what we see in the birth of Jesus all the way to our lives right now is God's world colliding with ours. That means that there will be spurts and inbreakings and unleashings of God's kingdom here and there. We will see and should see and even expect people being healed physically, emotionally, spiritually, set free physically, emotionally, spiritually, relationally, socially, that we will see things being set free in spurts here and there. It's not in its entirety. And you know that, right? You look at the world, you look at the headlines, and you're like, it's not heaven yet. And even here, we see Jesus healing a blind man, and yet there were hundreds of people in the city that he passed by and never healed. And today, we see people being healed, and we see others not being healed. And we might ask, why didn't he heal everyone when he was here? Why do these seem so seemingly arbitrary, these acts of healing and deliverance? He went around, and even in the Gospel of John, we only get maybe less than a half a dozen miracles. And of course, he did more than that, but he didn't heal everybody. The author of John tells us at the end of his book in chapter 20 the reason why he did the signs that he did. It says, these are written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. The one that Isaiah spoke about, that Ezekiel spoke about, that Jeremiah spoke about, that John the Baptist spoke about, that our hearts long for. He is the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you will have life by the power of his name. What we see in the Gospels is Jesus reversing the effects of the curse on individual basis as healing people left and right. He doesn't do it totally, but he does it a lot. And he does it to persuade the people that are here. I am bringing my kingdom, and it's coming for you. And so as we look out at the world, we would say, yeah, I see, I see, I see that God is moving here. But I also see that the curse is still here too. We still see pain and shame and brokenness that have to be dealt with. And that is that, that longing in our hearts that Paul's speaking about in Romans where he says creation was, was frustrated it was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hopes that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. What Paul is saying right there is that there's something in us that knows something is wrong. I live in a world with six mattresses and I feel like this isn't, supposed, this isn't how it's supposed to work, but I need someone to come into my mess and rearrange things. And there's a longing deep within every human being that things are not how they are supposed to be, but a hope kindled that there's something more. 
Jesus came in on the scene as a baby, grew up to a 30-year-old to say to people who would listen, zapping people left and right with healing and liberation, saying, I am the one that your heart has been steered for. I am the one that you have been longing for. And nobody can do the things that I can do. I am the hope of the world. When we gather in here on Sunday mornings, we gather around the hope of the world. When you throw lights up on Christmas trees and sing Christmas carols and and laugh and shout and listen to his word, we are gathering around the hope of the world. We are renewing that sense within us that we see in Romans chapter 8. Yes, it's only Jesus that brings liberation. And we gather around the liberator, the great liberator of men and women and heaven and on earth. And it is in that that we feel what the other hymn writer would declare so beautifully. That thrill of hope that causes the weary world to rejoice. For yonder breaks a new and glorious morn, so fall on your knees. Hear the angel voices, O night divine, O night, when Christ was born. We gather in this little building, in the middle of a high school, to let that thrill of hope stir once again in our hearts. In the midst of everything that we see out in the world, we gather together to let the thrill become kindled once again. So here's what we should do, at least with that. We should expect glimpses of God's kingdom to be in our midst. And we should pray for it to happen. We should pray for the gifts of the Spirit and the power of the Spirit, and the manifestations of the Spirit to be seen and felt and heard and experienced in our midst by our church for the city of Santa Barbara. We should expect and hope and believe for demons to be cast out, for bodies to be healed, for minds to be set free, for broken marriages to be mended, for addictions to be crushed under the mighty power of the hand of God. And we should actively approach those things because when Jesus came, he said, I'm bringing the kingdom. And the kingdom has drawn near in my coming. And if I cast out demons by my finger, the, finger of God, the, the, the kingdom of God has come upon you, has come near to you. And so we should expect those things. In fact, Jesus would say to his disciples, of which we are included, greater works will you do than me because I'm out of here. I go to the Father. How many of you actually believe that? Greater works will my disciples do than me? Holy Spirit needs to thrill our hearts again. To steer in our hearts a wide panoramic view of a powerful God who has given us every resource in heaven and has called us to participate in the breaking forth of his kingdom.
But we should also hold that blessing and the curse in tension, knowing that we cannot bring the kingdom in its fullness. Knowing that only Christ himself can fix some things and knowing that he will completely end the curse at his second appearing. And what Christmas does for you and I is it tells us he came once and his first coming is going to be matched by his second coming. And there are certain things that only Christ can do at his second coming and he will do them. It also gives us comfort when we pray and our prayers don't get answered. Or when we are discouraged by what we see. And when we look out and we want to celebrate and rejoice, but we do not see the kingdom as we would like to see it. We have hope and comfort knowing, hey, no matter how discouraged I get in this life, there is an end to this and I know how it turns out. Jesus is bringing the kingdom. And so right now, we're experiencing God's world colliding with ours in little bits. But his second coming means that his world will eventually become ours. We won't just taste the kingdom. We will feast in the kingdom. And there will be nothing else except for that kingdom. I love what the prophet Habakkuk said. Right now, we experience little tastes of his glory. But the prophet Habakkuk would tell us, I think in chapter 2, maybe verse 12, that one day, the knowledge of the glory of God will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. God's world collides with ours in the birth of Jesus Christ, and that's where we are right now at, but one day, his world will consume ours. And this is what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15. That one of these days, the end will come when Jesus finishes it all and he hands over the kingdom to God the Father. After that world has collided and taken over ours, he will hand it like a gift to his Father. At Christmas, we celebrate the giving of gifts to each other. Guess what? Jesus hands a gift to his Father. That gift is us, packaged and complete and glorified in all of the beauty that we were intended to have. He hands it over to the Father after he has destroyed all dominion and authority and power for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And we live in this unfolding storyline where Jesus is spreading his rule and reign and he's calling us to participate in the spreading of his rule and reign. And one day his rule and reign will be complete when death is defeated. A scene from that future day is in Revelation 21, verse 1 through 5. John looks forward to when this happens, and he says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. How many of us think that we're just going to leave earth and go somewhere else? John says that heaven comes to earth and changes everything. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. 
and he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And you're wondering why heaven has to come to earth. And John says this, because he who was seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. How does God change your house? It causes his house to crash down upon your house. He brings his heaven to bear upon your earth. God is in the business of making all things new. And even, in the, even now, he's in the process of doing that. Christmas then, for the Christian is a powerful celebration of things to come. It is also a powerful celebration of things that we get to taste here and now. I just want to give you three ways to taste and to celebrate in the truth and the hope of Christmas. What does this mean for us? It means that we can live in alignment with that hope and blessing. Here's the first way. By simple enjoyment... Recognizing that there are things in your life that are just good. And I'm not speaking about inherently and explicitly Christianized things, like a, Christ, a Christian song or a Christian gathering. It could be anything. If you like to surf, it's surfing. If you like to shop, it's shopping. If you like to eat, it's sitting down at a meal. Perhaps you've experienced a glimmer of hope in a relationship. Perhaps you're single and you've experienced a glimmer of hope in solitude and contemplation. Maybe you are, you're just feeling a, a life-giving sense about something that you're doing in your job and it's, it's, it's life-giving to you. Good things that happen. They should cause us to remember that that's how God created the world. And we can rejoice in that and say, Lord, thank you. And actually soak it up as a spiritual act of worship. There's not just enjoyment, there's renewal. Knowing that not everything is like that, right? Not everything is good. Perhaps you go to a job and you feel like you have a dead-end job. And it's not life-giving, it's terrible, and it's toilsome. And it's marked by the curse, if you were to be honest. You're like, I don't, I don't know what to do about this. There are days when you walk into a room with six mattresses and think something about this isn't right. And Christmas causes you to think a different way. In the midst of the curse, God is causing us to think, in what way does the kingdom of God in me affect the curse around me. In our broken relationships, in our bummed out neighbors, in the futility of our job place, and the list goes on. Thirdly, it gives us hope. And that there are certain things that none of us can change. The death, the sickness, the disappointment, the emptiness, and we press on with the hope that God one day will finish what he started and praise God that he's starting with each of us right now. 
And we know this because one of the first things that Christ did to reverse the curse was to reverse the curse in each of our hearts. And 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 21 tells us that we know this. For each of us that have put our faith and trust in Christ, Paul says, now it is God who makes both of us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us and set his seal of ownership on us and put his seal on our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. When he came the first time, he left you with a taste of the kingdom, the power of the kingdom, which is his Holy Spirit. That was his way of saying, I'm coming back. And in the meantime, I'm giving you everything you need to experience and to celebrate and to live out the beauty and the power of the kingdom of God that comes with Jesus Christ. That means that each of you are almost like a, a trailer, a movie trailer. It gives you a snippet of something to come in the future. As you go out from here, you're doing that to each other, I hope. That the way that we live when we're filled, and we come to this place, hopefully to be filled by the presence of Jesus and by what he's doing in each other, each other's lives. We leave this place filled. At least, I hope in some degree, as Paul says, with all the fullness of God. And we go out as a snapshot of what people in Santa Barbara were truly made for. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. As we, I hope, can once again move our eyes from here to here in an act of pure celebration. And I don't know where you're at right now. Maybe your life is amazing right now. And maybe it's not. And I'm not telling you if it's not amazing, if you're actually discouraged and struggling, to pretend like your life is good and to just snuff it out and to suppress it. I'm saying in the midst of the mess, let's for two hours on this Sunday carve out space to focus our eyes on the Son of God who makes all things new. This is why he came. <laughs> he came to reverse the curse. And he came to call all of those who are weary back to the one who can give them rest. As we sing today, let earth receive her king. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. <laughs>